Good evening. Welcome to the core class. Uh, I just had one of the pastors just tell me if I started giving dates and passing out Kool-Aid, he was leaving. So don't worry, there'll be no specific dates given out tonight, and there will be no Kool-Aid. So you all should feel safe. We're going to make it through tonight. Um, <clears throat> I'm excited about it. Uh, we still have some people coming in, uh, but I thought we shouldn't wait any longer. I thought maybe coming up five minutes early and doing a monologue would be good, but I'm not really good off the cuff. So I decided not to do a monologue. Um, but tonight is kind of a big night <clears throat> for me. Uh, in 1999, which is kind of a long time ago, some of you maybe even weren't born then, I was in Mexico City. Uh, my wife and I were missionaries in Mexico, and I had a friend who was older than me. He was a director with Campus Crusade for Christ. He, we were talking about doing some ministry together. So he, I was in Guadalajara, and he flew me to Mexico City to spend some time with me. And he started asking me some questions about my long-term goals. And he had a backpack on, I had a backpack on. We were work, just walking through the campus there in the, the University of Mexico City. And one of the things I said to him, I said, I would love to put together a theological study, starting with the nature of God all the way through to the end times, and teach a church doctrine. I had read a couple theology books at that point, and I loved it. And I felt like God was maybe calling me to teach it but I didn't really have an avenue to do so, and I had to probably study some more. Uh, but tonight is the seventh of seven core classes on doctrine. This is the last one. So in a lot of ways, I feel like tonight is the, the culmination of a prayer request that God answered, that I prayed 20 years ago that God is answering tonight to be able to finish this thing up and to do it together. And it's been so fun to do it with you. Uh, I've had a lot of you on Thursdays in my classes. You've asked me great questions. You've sent me encouraging emails. And just to let you know, I've received every one of those. I've needed every one of those. This has been hard, but it's been super fun. Tonight probably isn't the easiest of the seven classes, but I'm equally as excited about it. When I was, when I was a sophomore in college, I was working through a theology book, which is just something I, I did on Friday nights. <clears throat> I, was, I was dating Jen, so I'd hang out with her on Saturday nights, but on Friday nights, I'd hang out with Jesus. And... Uh, <clears throat> And as I was working through this one, this was my first theology book that I worked through, uh, I got to the end time section, which is near the end, so page 403, way back here, and I'd read like just the prologue, just introducing the concept of the end times and what was to come. And if you know me, you know that I like to highlight, I like to make notes, I'll write prayers in the text of my Bible, like I just, I spent a lot of time writing the things that I'm working on. So here at the bottom of this page, as I was getting started into this section, this was just a prayer that was on my heart 22, 23 years ago. I was talking to the Lord, and I just said, Lord, set my sights on your return. Allow me to live a life of glorious expectancy and anticipation of seeing you as you are. Allow the reality of your return again to be made known in your body. So that was a prayer that I prayed when I read that, and uh, it's fun to be with you here tonight. Uh, I believe that the Lord's answering that prayer. I want us to be excited about the Lord's return. Uh, we'll talk about some, some things that we differ on as the body of Christ, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But at the end of the day, this content, this topic is a topic of celebration, right? When we're done, I believe at the end of the book of Revelation, no matter how you got to the end of the book of Revelation, it says, come Lord Jesus, come. So I'm so excited tonight that as we talk, as we discuss, I know where we're going. I know where the plane lands. I know how we end this thing. I know how the whole thing ends. So do you. It ends with, come, Lord Jesus, come. 
So with great excitement, uh, I look forward to jumping into this with you. If you want to look at your table of contents real quick, I want to let you know where we're going and what's going to happen tonight. We've got four sessions. If you notice, your book's kind of thick. I tried hard not to make it thick, so that's me trying hard. It's 75 pages, not 150, so you're welcome. Um, <clears throat> tonight, just to let you know what we're going to get through and what we're not going to get through, we'll get through session one, and session one won't be too bad. Like, I'm going to throw maybe some new concepts at you. When we get to session two, that's going to be hard. I'm just going to let you know. That's probably some of the hardest stuff that I've gone through so far in the core classes. And we're going to get through it. I'm going to try to make it fun. I'm going to try to use examples, illustrations, put stuff up on the board. But session two is going to be hard. Uh, about halfway through session two or near the end of session two, we're going to have intermission. Uh, I don't know what we have for food or drink, but there'll be something. I'll give you a chance to stretch. Give me a chance just to chill out for a second. And then we'll come back in 10 minutes and we'll finish up through section three. Uh, session four, most likely, we're going to be doing next Thursday. I usually do my core classes on Thursdays, so I'll have an, a lunchtime core class and an evening core class that we'll put on podcasts, we'll put online. So we won't get through session four tonight uh, just because we won't. Like, it'll be nine o'clock, and we'll be done. You'll be done. Your head's going to be burning. My mouth will be burning, and we'll be ready to be done. But session four, we'll do it, uh, and it'll be online. It'll be on podcasts, but that'll happen next Thursday if you'd like to join me and finish the book up together next Thursday. So I just want to make sure you knew where we were going and you had right expectations moving into tonight. Uh, before we start, I think we should pray. Let's talk to the Lord together. Tonight, Lord, we come before you as objects of your grace. There's nothing in us by nature that is worthy of your love, but Lord, in your incredible goodness, uh, you've adopted us, you've drawn us to yourself, and tonight is a night of celebration. There's a lot of things that we don't understand, and there's a lot of things that aren't clear, and you chose not to make a lot of these things not clear. Uh, but it's very clear, Lord, that you've set your heart on us, you've set your eyes on us, and you have guaranteed for us that there's a day when we will see you face to face. And may tonight be a celebration of that reality. May we be focused on the things that we do know and celebrate those things and have those be the things that give us hope and joy even in our hardest days. Uh, with anticipation and with great appreciation of you, uh, we love you, and in your name, lead us forward. Amen. All right, if you would, turn with me to page one. Page one. <clears throat> so tonight, we're starting with preliminary considerations in part one. Uh, we're going to start with background, bias, and hope. So there's a couple things we're going to talk about right at the beginning. Uh, tonight's goal is not to convince anyone of a particular end-time system or a singular way of thinking through things, and that's not the goal tonight. Bible Center's doctrinal statement aligns with a particular view of the end times. Tonight is not about challenging that or questioning that. Uh, the goal of tonight and the desire of the elders as I spent time talking to them is to take a broad, unbiased look at the different points of view on interpreting prophecy in the Bible to provide an overview of the various ways of outlining those end times within conservative, conservative Christianity and to study the areas of agreement in evangelicalism. So we're gonna, I'm going to look at different things, things that maybe our church doesn't lean that way, but we can still talk about it, okay? I'm not saying you have to go in any other direction than exactly where our church is, but we should know about those things, and we should talk openly about them. Uh, my background, just so you know, during my early childhood, during high school, uh, as a young, young guy, my family and I got involved with a church plant right after my dad became a Christian when I was in sixth grade, and the pastor there was a pastor from Dallas Theological Seminary. And if you know what that means, it means that they align with a particular way of viewing the end times and a particular way of interpreting Scripture as a whole. 
So that was my background. In college, I had the same background. Even when I went to seminary, I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and there they have different professors with different points of view. But the one I took when we studied eschatology, the end times, had the same point of view as the Dallas Theological Seminary professors back in the day. So I just need to know, and I want you to know, that I do likely have a bias, a go-to way of interpreting certain passages. So in many passages, I've possibly only ever seen them from a singular perspective. Uh, I've had a system in place for a lot of years to guide the way I interpret Scripture. But my hope tonight is to be able to view it from other points of view. So even though I might have bias, even though you come in, you might have just one way of seeing things, I hope together we can see things from other points of view, from brothers and sisters in Christ who have just landed in a different place when it comes to the way they view the end times. And we can see that there is unity in Christ, even though there's diversity in some opinion. So as we move forward, that's what we're thinking. So there are many other deeply biblical and conservative churches that would hold to differing interpretations than we have with the end times. But tonight, we're just trying to see things from their point of view also. Uh, one thing we have to realize, that for more than 1,800 years, no church held to a pre-trib dispensational way of viewing scriptures or the end times. It's a much younger doctrine than many of the other doctrines that we have. So we're going to respectively look at other points of view in addition to our point of view. Page two. As we move forward, Scripture has got to be king. I never want to be the guy who stands up front and says that I have a system and my, the Scriptures have to obey my system. It's always got to be this way. Scripture's on top and everything else is below. So if Scripture's on top, the question we have to ask over and over again is, am I interpreting it correctly? Am I understanding it correctly? So correct interpretation has to be our goal. Bias or background cannot speak to Scripture. Scripture must speak to it. Humility, peace, and unity are clearly taught with more authority and clarity than the majority of these difficult doctrines are about to discuss. So at the end of the day, even if you land in a little different spot than someone else, you can be completely unified because the Bible speaks with absolute clarity that we love one another in humility even in these areas where we can have disagreement and still trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So in the same way that the Old Testament saints misunderstood much of what God was saying about the first coming of Christ, it, it's just possible that maybe, maybe you and I are going to have some misunderstandings, misunderstandings of what it's going to look like when Jesus comes the second time. They kind of got it wrong. I'm not saying we're going to get it wrong, but let's just not believe with 100% certainty that we're going to be the ones that get it right. Where Scripture is clear, we have to say it's clear. Where it's unclear, we just have to say it's a little unclear. So tonight, every question will not be answered. In fact, you might have more questions after tonight than when you first came in. Is that what you're expecting to hear? Um, so expect, though, to be filled with hope. Expect to feel, be filled with joy in the reality that there still is going to be a certain level of mystery that we will study and we're gonna to explore together. So, second point, correct interpretation. Correct interpretation is key. If we don't start there, we don't have a path, we don't have a trajectory, a direction to go, so we start with correct interpretation. In the book of Revelation, chapter one, verse three, it says this, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things in it, for the time is near. 
the author says, blessed is he who reads and hears these words. Not overwhelmed, not condemned, not scared, not nervous, not overwhelmed with grief, not afraid of tribulation, but blessed, happy, at peace, experiencing some level of shalom and like just a safe feeling within your soul. You are blessed from reading these words. So if you read the words of Revelation and you end at a place where you're not feeling blessed, thankful, happy, and full of joy in the Lord, then that means we've interpreted it incorrectly. Because according to the book itself, the direction it takes us is a direction of blessedness. Okay, so that's part of what we have to remember in the back of our mind as we move forward. If Scripture is king, then we must properly understand the Bible before we can possibly apply it. Correct interpretation is only possible when we understand the historical and literary context of the book. Each book has a context. The author would write a book with an intention in mind, with a purpose, with an occasion in mind. It's important for us to know that purpose, to know that occasion. Those who received the book, received the letter, they had something going on in their life. And that book was written in part to them. It was written to the whole church, but also to that particular part of the church as well. So we have to see both of those things as we move forward. Historical context. Each book has an author, each book has an audience. The author wrote with an intention and a purpose in mind. The audience would have heard the contents of the letter in a particular way based upon their culture and their situation. So it's important for us to know culture and situation to understand how they understood what was written. The better we can understand these things, the better shot we have at correct interpretation. Literary context. This is something that sometimes we don't think about as we spend time in Scripture. Words have meaning in phrases. Phrases have meaning in sentences, sentences in paragraphs, paragraphs in chapters, chapters in books, books in genres. So that sounds obvious. But if you take that seriously and then you turn on the radio and listen to how certain verses are preached, you'll realize that that basic rule of thumb of how we communicate to one another is often not obeyed or paid attention to, but that's how language works. If we start trying to dissect a word without first understanding its phrase in the sentence, then we're gonna interpret it and teach it incorrectly. So we are destined to derive at the wrong meaning if we take it out of its correct interpretation. Luke chapter four, verse seven, it says this, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. That sounds like a good promise, doesn't it? Wouldn't that be nice on a sweater? Maybe Christmas is coming, right? Put that on a mug. That's Satan talking to Jesus. Not something you want on a mug. Don't put that on a sweater, okay? That promise isn't for you. It's a lie from the pit of hell to Jesus himself. But when you take it out of context, you're not paying attention. You can really mess some things up. That's an obvious one, but there's less obvious ones that are all over Christianity. It's also necessary that we understand that everything written in Scripture lands in a particular genre. Remember what genres are? There's poetry, there's nowadays we have sci-fi, we might have fantasy, we have um, instruction manuals, that's like a genre. Uh, we have documentaries, we have fiction, we have nonfiction. So all those are genres. The Bible also has lots of genres. And each of those genres, the rules that they used in that day is the rule that we should use in our day. We can't take 21st century thinking and force biblical authors to use our way of viewing their genre in order for us to interpret it. We have to ask the question, how did they understand this? 
What were they thinking when they wrote this? If you're reading a science fiction or a fantasy novel and you're reading about unicorns and centaurs and all those things and you're afraid you're gonna get run over by one when you walk out to your, your, down your driveway to your mailbox, then you've misunderstood. Fantasy means fantasy. You don't have to worry about unicorns, you're safe. But when it comes to scripture, sometimes we forget that the genre helps us understand the content and purpose of what's being written. So we have to remember that. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, you should pluck that thing out. Jesus said that. It's a command, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it out. He goes on, if your right hand causes you to sin, you should cut that thing off. So far tonight, I've seen two eyes on every head. So are you just not being faithful to what Jesus called you to do? In terms of genre, Jesus was speaking with exaggerated speech. It's called hyperbole. Like he was intentionally making a big, huge point by saying something that he didn't expect you to literally do. Hopefully you've caught that. Jesus would oftentimes use parable, simile, metaphor, hyperbole, pun when he was communicating. Those are types of speech. That's genre. So if you get it wrong, you might need an eye patch, right? So we've got to get it right. So when it comes to revelation and prophecy and apocalyptic literature, we need to understand the rules of the genre to correctly interpret the words that we're reading. So it's really important. Even books of the Bible need to be seen in light of major themes of Scripture, along with the historical context and the stated purpose of the letter. So in that next little section, you've got a little blank. The question is, what are the major themes of Scripture? I would argue that every book in the Bible, all 66 of them, are each pointing towards these major four themes. So I would write these down. The first one is the progressive revelation of God's character. The progressive revelation of God's character. Each book is telling you something more about the Lord, about the Son, about the Spirit. As we go from Genesis to Exodus on through, we're getting a clearer and clearer image of who He actually is on through to the book of Revelation. As you're reading Revelation, if you get so hung up on the beast or a dragon or something like that, and you forget and you miss what you're learning about the Lord himself, then you've taken that book outside of the major overall theme of Scripture. Don't miss the beauty of that. The second one is the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation. Every book is pointing towards it. Every book. It's either pointing towards our need for a Messiah, the reality of the Messiah, or the working of that Messiah in our life. Everything is pointing to that. At the end, when we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come, it has to do with our plan of salvation, the consummation of what has been promised to us in Jesus. So everything is pointing to that. The third one, this one might seem obvious, but Jesus himself. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. If I had three extra hours, which I don't, we could go through the entire Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and just look at Jesus dancing on each of the pages. He's all over it. Everything is pointing to Jesus. And as we get to the New Testament, everything is pointing back to Jesus, saying, this is who has come, this is what he's like, this is how knowing him will change everything about you. And then it says, and he's coming back. So everything in the Bible is about Jesus. The fourth one is the glory of God. All these things, and these things kind of overlap, of course. The plan of salvation means nothing without Jesus. 
God's revealing his character and reveals the need for Jesus. And all these things point to and lead to the glory of God. So as we're thinking about prophecy, we're thinking about end times, we're thinking about particular scriptures, we always have to be asking ourselves, how do these things fit into the major themes of scripture? If we pull it out of the context of the major themes, we're going to miss things, big things. We have to make sure we know that and remember that. Page three. Defining terms, end times. We just have to make sure we're on the same page here. End times is the modern equivalent for the scriptural expression, the last days, which refers to the final product of history before the last day, which is the day of Jesus' second coming and the day of the last judgment. Eschatology refers to the prophecies, events, and developments that are close to and connected with the last period of history before the end. Apocalyptic describes events related more directly to the end of the world. The Great Tribulation. I just took the verse where it says Great Tribulation. Revelation 7:14 says, These are the ones who came out of the Great Tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. So these are some of the major events, okay? There's also a second coming, which we'll get to, but there are multiple eschatological systems or ways of categorizing these future events. So I'm going to introduce some of those to you. Maybe you know these, maybe you don't. But I made little, there's little graphs here, so it'll help you. Uh, the first one is amillennialism. Amillennialism is the position that denies a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth in the future. The 1,000 years is viewed as the reign of Christ through the church in the present age. So part of one of the, one of the terms that we didn't get to, but millennium is this concept of a period of time where we're told in Scripture that Jesus reigns. Some would take it more literal. Some would take it more figurative. The amillennialist takes it very figurative. He would say we are in the millennium. Or, well, there isn't even really is one, but this concept is what's happening right now where there's tribulation, there's a growing church. If you look down at the first graphic, it shows you have Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you have the church. And the church right now is in tribulation as the kingdom of God is growing. And then all these things, a final rebellion, a resurrection, judgment, second coming, it all happens at the same time. And then we go into the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. Postmillennialism is the view that Jesus will return after a period of millennial conditions has been ushered in by the ministry of the church on earth. Those graphics got mixed around. On page four, you can see the graphic for postmillennialism. This is a little different. So it believes in the millennium. It just believes it's already done. It believes it's already done. Uh, they would say this great tribulation happened when the temple was destroyed back in 70 AD. They would say that, so as, as the churches received the book of Revelation, they would say it took place before 70 AD when they read and received that letter. And it was pointing to basically the Roman Empire destroying the temple, which was like the centerpiece of the Israel people and they would call that the Great Tribulation. So everything after that is the millennium, where the point of view from the post-millennialist is that everything is slowly going to get better over time, that Christ lives in and through his church. He gives all authority. He has all authority and is in the church. He's the head of the church, and he's with the church, and therefore the power and influence of the church will grow over time until the last day. That's what a post-millennialist will think. Premillennialism, 
there's a couple points of view on premillennialism. So if premillennialism is like a type of ice cream, we'll just call it vanilla ice cream, there's gonna be a couple different flavors we're gonna talk about. Uh, premillennialism is the view that Jesus will return and establish a 1,000 year reign of peace on earth, foreshadowing the perfect world that will soon come after the judgment day and the restoration of all things. So they would not say we're in the millennium, they would not say that there is just a figurative millennium. The premillennialist believes that there's a literal millennium that's still yet to come in the future. So there's two major types. There's historic premillennialism and there's dispensational premillennialism. We'll start with historic. We'll call this our cookies and cream. So we add a little bit more into that. Now we got some cookies in there. This is our cookies and cream uh, historic premillennialism. Historics, historics, including many of the early church fathers, do not see so sharp a distinction between Israel and the church. Rather, all believers are united as one group, the body of Christ. Historic premillennialists see no issue with the church going through the Great Tribulation. The rapture, which is a concept we're gonna talk about soon, the rapture, this, the church being taken up to be with Jesus, and the second coming of Jesus, from their point of view, all kind of happens together. Where Christ kind of takes his church up, kind of like catches them in the air and brings them right back down, sets up his millennial reign. So a historic premillennialist views the rapture and the second coming of Christ all together as he then sets up his 1,000-year millennial reign. And at the end of that comes judgment and the eternal state. Dispensational premillennialism. Uh, we'll call this moose tracks. How about that? So there's, there's a lot more to this one. Um, so this one... Uh, proposes to have a secret rapture. Um, and if you've seen the movies, I mean, the Tim LaHaye, all the end times books that have come out, like that's this point of view. It proposes a secret rapture where the church is caught up with Christ, okay? But the timing of the rapture is debated, but it could happen almost at any moment and the church is just gone. And those taken with Christ are with Christ. It's not like they're coming up, Jesus catches them on the way down and sets up his millennial reign. They're just gone and they're with Christ potentially for the entire tribulation period. And then when the tribulation's over, then Jesus comes down to reign and brings his church with him, would be the point of view of the dispensational premillennialist. Now, if you look at the chart there, you're gonna see the little arrows pointing up. There's a one, a two, a three, and a four. There are multiple points of view as to when the church will be raptured. We're gonna talk more about that in a minute. I want you to notice at the bottom of page five, I have this chart with four columns. Those four columns represent people who land in these different categories. So depending on your background and like my background, I've kind of primarily been taught one way. So when I saw these names in the different columns that I wouldn't, that isn't like my go-to used to be normal background column, I was kind of surprised. In the first column, we have historic premillennialists. Uh, a lot of those are early church guys, but then you have Albert Moeller, you have John Piper, you've probably heard of him, Francis Schaeffer, great philosopher and thinker, D.A. Carson, incredible theologian, one of the best commentators on the planet, bar none. Brian Chappell is a guy who has taught generations of preachers who are serving in pulpits all around the country. Dispensational premillennialism. We've got Schofield. You've seen the Schofield Bible at some point, or you've heard of it. Uh, very influential. Walverd, Ryrie, great theologians, Dwight Pentecost. You've probably heard of John MacArthur. You've probably heard of Jerry Fair Falwell. Uh, David Jeremiah. I know some of you listen to him every single, every single week. So these are people you know and respect, as you should. Postmillennialists. 
Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you know much about Jonathan Edwards. Brilliant. Some of the hardest stuff. If you want to read something that's just going to make your mind explode and like sizzle like bacon, read Jonathan Edwards. It'll sizzle like bacon. Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, John Calvin. Like These folks are brilliant. B.B. Uh, Warfield has one of the best books ever written on the personal work of Jesus Christ. But he lands in a very different place than where you know, some of us would land in terms of post-millennialism. So he lands in that, in that area. Augustine from the 300s, J.I. Packer, Sproul, Keller, you've probably heard of those guys. Jay Adams is the guy who started biblical counseling, like a newthetic Bible only. Like, so he's a very, very conservative background believer. Uh, he holds to amillennialism. And those guys at the bottom uh, also have put out some great stuff. So all these guys, all these guys in any one of these columns is probably smarter than the majority of us put together here tonight. Like these are some really brilliant guys who love the Lord, who are all united around the basics of the gospel. So point being, if you put all these guys in the same church, they could all still serve together and be unified in the same church, having different points of view on the end times. So just because believers might have different points of view doesn't mean they can't be unified in Christ doesn't mean they can't saturate a city with the gospel. doesn't mean they can't go arm in arm and love Jesus while they have a different point of view of how it's all going to work out. I respect everybody on this page, okay? Yeah, we might disagree with some of them, but I respect all of them. Let's go to page six. Rapture. The church, all true believers in Christ, are caught up, taken away to be with Christ in a single glorious moment. First Thessalonians talks about that. Rapture timing. In the dispensational premillennial point of view, there are several different positions held concerning the timing of the rapture and the tribulation. So maybe this is like chocolate moose tracks and then like moose tracks extra chunky. Like, so there's like, if you just, if you just keep going, like it keeps getting more and more intense in terms of the different points of view. So if you look down there, there's the different graphics describing the different points of view on the rapture. One is a pre-trib, which means before the tribulation starts, the rapture takes place. One's a mid-trib, halfway through, up you go. One is a post-trib, which is very similar to historic premillennialism. You go through the tribulation, and then you're taken up. Uh, there's also a newer one called pre-wrath. A guy named Rosenthal wrote this book. It's pretty thick. I know a couple of people in this church that hold to a pre-wrath. The concept there isn't so much a certain amount of time before God brings forth the rapture. The point of view is, at some point in the Great Tribulation, the full brunt of God's wrath comes down. And before that last full brunt of God's wrath comes down, that's when he brings the church up. Whether it's at the beginning, the middle, or near the end, or three quarters, just pre-wrath. So that's where that position lands. It's not a day or a specific time, just before the ultimate brunt of God's wrath comes, we are taken away. Not a very good snapper. Let's go to page seven. So tonight, every question will not be answered. I said that once, let's go ahead and say it again. We're just still in the pre-millennial, pre like we're still in the preliminary thoughts, by the way. We haven't really even jumped into the study. Um, every question will not be answered. So in the Old Testament, like I said, Jesus is all over the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's this comment about the seed of the woman. Uh, God is talking to the woman, and he's having a conversation with her, and he's talked to the serpent, he's talked to the man, he's saying... There's a seed of the woman, there's one who is coming, who will crush the head, the authority and the power of the serpent. 
We all know, because Galatians tells us, that he was talking about a coming Messiah. Even back in Genesis 3.15, he was talking about a, the first coming of Jesus. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he brings it up again. Hey, Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. Again, that's a picture, and it's a pointing to a coming Messiah. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we see all these arrows pointing to a coming Messiah. But you know what? Oftentimes, they had no idea what was going on. They didn't know what the verse meant. It wasn't like in Genesis 3.15, God says that, and Eve goes, good, whoo, we're good to go. One's coming. Like, she didn't do that. That wasn't her response because it was still very mysterious to her. In Ephesians, and Colossians, it talks about the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christ. And what it's referring to is the fact that in the Old Testament, there wasn't a clear understanding of who Jesus would be, what he would do, and what he would be like. It was mysterious. So until he came and it was made clear, it was mysterious. On some level, the things we're talking about tonight for us is a little mysterious. God could have done this. He could have given us an instruction manual on exactly what's going to happen in the end times. He could have had, like, at the back of the Bible, like a pull-out timeline where it shows you everything that's going to happen. Like, he could have done that for the book of Revelation. But instead of doing that, he gave us, and he used the most difficult genre, probably in the history of the planet, to explain how things are going to roll out, how things are going to happen. He chose to make it not clear. He chose that genre with intentionality, okay? Why? His point wasn't to give you every step and exactly how it's going to happen. He chose a genre to make that impossible to do, okay? He wanted it to be slightly mysterious uh, because doesn't it make sense that his goal isn't that you trust in the signs? The goal isn't that you trust in your timeline. Your goal is that his goal is that you trust in him, right? So if it's a little mysterious, you just have to keep reaching your hand out and say, Dad, I trust you. Dad, I trust you. I don't know what's going on for sure, but I trust you. So there's some level where it makes sense. It's how God has always worked, and he's continuing to work that way even with us now. So the New Testament speaks frequently about the end times, but it does not speak exhaustively. There's lots of things that it just doesn't tell us about, and it often does not speak clearly, and that was not by accident. A typical instruction manual of the end times has not been given to us. If you want one, I don't have one to sell. This is 75 pages, but it's not an instruction manual. Uh, he didn't give us one, and it's hard to make one. Many conclusions are taken from difficult and often unclear passages. It is challenging at times to determine the nature and uses of the genres in which many of the end times passages are found. To go in and point at a verse in the middle of apocalyptic literature and say, I am certain that this is what it means, you just, there needs to be humility. There needs to be, I think this might be what it means, but to push and to point hard and to say everyone else is wrong, it makes me nervous. A clear timeline is not outlined in scripture. Any outline that has been put together is a combination of passages from different books, lots of different genres being put together, trying to be ordered together. Verses are taken from epistles, from visions, from apocalyptic literature. And again, apocalyptic literature by nature is intentionally unclear. If you want to make something unclear, you write it with apocalyptic literature. If that's your intention, that's the perfect genre. And he chose that genre. So, if you take a bunch of, you take a puzzle and you dump it on the table, okay, that's, that's what it looks like right there. It's just a ton of 
pieces in the middle of the table. The way that you figure out, the way that you get started on putting those pieces together is usually you look at the top of the box, and you can see how the whole thing works out. Trees, mountains, sky, clouds, now I get it. Between now and when you and I are in heaven, we don't get to look at the top of the box. Yes, we get to try to find some corner pieces. Yes, we try to put some edging together. But it is really hard because we never get to see what it's supposed to look like. Now, from heaven, we're going to look back and we're going to say, of course, like that makes so much sense. Th that verse, the way it said that, totally made that. The parsing of that verb, those two words together, the way you put them together, obviously, how do we miss that? But it only seems obvious in hindsight. It only seems obvious after we get to see the top of the box. So don't feel bad if it feels hard to you. It should feel hard. You haven't gotten the opportunity to see the whole thing from God's point of view. But one day, you will. Debating various opinions and points of view on the end times is a very different situation than debating differing points of view and positions on the person and work of Christ. If you're in a conversation with another Christian and they're trying to argue with you about whether Jesus was deity or not, that conversation is a much more important conversation than one about the timing of the rapture. One is a spiritual life or death conversation. The other one is a matter of difference of opinion. So we have to recognize where this lands. It's not as important as knowing the personal work of Christ. It's important because it's in Scripture, but it's also intentionally unclear. So in great humility, pursuing peace and unity, uh, these are necessary as we discuss topics that are still slightly beyond our grasp. This topic should never lead to division. As you enter the doors to heaven, Jesus isn't going to stop you and say, hey, one second, one second. What was your point of view on the end times? I need, I need you to answer that before I let you in. What was your point of view on the end times? Jesus isn't going to stop anyone on the way into heaven with a pop quiz on your point of view on the end times to see if you got it right to let you know if you got in. He's not going to do that. Now, I'm not saying it's not important. We wouldn't be spending three hours tonight if it wasn't, well, two and a half hours, didn't want to scare you, two and a half hours tonight if it wasn't important. But, like, it's not how you get in or don't get into heaven. We have to realize that it fits where it's supposed to fit in terms of core and peripheral doctrines. In the Old Testament, Jews were hoping for a Messiah. They believed they knew what and who they were looking for. Most of them were looking for a great political ruler. Even with many clearly stated prophecies, riding on donkeys, being born in a major, swaddling clothes, suffering servants, they still were looking for a great, mighty political ruler. Many are still looking today. So let's not assume that we can perfectly see our future. Let's not assume that we've got it all charted out. When God's people in the Old Testament couldn't see their coming Messiah clearly, we may not see every single detail with perfect clarity either. If God wanted to be clearly understood, he would have stated it clearly. Rather, he chose one of the most difficult and symbolic and allegorical genres in the history of the world. Back in the day, from 100 BC up to about 200 or 300 AD, apocalypses were being written all over the place. Like, it was a genre. Like, today, if you want to find something on, what, vampires and werewolves, you have about 30 different novels you can pick from because everybody likes writing about vampires and werewolves. Well, back in the day, they were writing these apocalyptic works, and there were some similarities. So when John, inspired by God himself, wrote this apocalyptic work, like it was, an it was a genre that existed during the day. Most of them were very grim, like they didn't end up in a good spot. 
So one of the things that was unique about Revelation when it was written is here's an apocalypse where at the end, there's celebration. So it was apocalyptic, but it was a different form of it. Like it didn't end in destruction. I mean, there is some destruction, but it ends in glory. It ends in beauty. It ends in everything being renewed and remade and restored. So Revelation stood out amongst the apocalyptic literature, but it was apocalyptic literature in its nature, in its genre, and that was intentional. Session two. So interpretation needs to be our starting point. Depending on where you start will determine where you finish. Depending on where you start with this interpretation will partly determine where you're going to finish in your point of view on the end times. If you are flying a plane out of LAX and you're heading towards New York City, and you're just 3.5 degrees off, the pilot's 3.5 degrees south, you end up in Washington, D.C. So even though it's just a tiny change, the trajectory is just a little bit off, you end up in a whole other city. The same is true with our understanding of how we interpret some of these passages. If we have a slightly different point of view of someone else, you end up in Washington, D.C. So let's talk about that for a little bit. And again, this is going to be a hard section. Some of this, I'm just going to read some of it because I can't summarize it. I have to read it, uh, and we're going to work through it. If, if at the end of this, you're like, I don't get it. Well, this is on video. This is on podcast, and you have the book. So you can go over it multiple times. Uh, I have gone over this multiple times just to make sure that I can even explain it. Okay, so let's jump into this together. But this is, sometimes we get into talking about our position on the rapture before we talk about how to interpret something. Chicken egg issues? Like, don't talk about this until you figure out how you even understand the passage to begin with. Don't talk about how to apply something until you've understood how to understand something. So we've got to start here. If we don't start here, I think, who knows where we're going to end up? You leave LAX, Shooting for New York City, you wind up in Tampa. I don't want us to end up in Tampa, okay? So let's, let's start here. There's great interpretive difficulty. No question facing the student of eschatology is more important than the question of method to be employed in the interpretation of prophetic scripture, a guy named Pentecost. Genre and types of speech. Okay, hear this. This is God speaking in Hosea 12.10. I spoke to the prophets gave them visions and told parables through them. So when God was speaking through the prophets, he was doing it using visions and parables. He just identified to us how he wrote his prophecies through his prophets. Visions and parables. Visions are intended to be more like a work of art than a documentary. In other words, a vision is something that you see. Like if you walk into an art museum, and there's a big piece of art, you're going to see it. And the main thing that that artist is trying to get across to you is a particular feeling. Okay, there's, there's knowledge taking place. You're learning something. You're seeing things, but there should be something that just is impressed upon you by seeing it as a whole, because it's designed to be seen as a whole. A documentary is paragraph by paragraph. It's an outline. It's point A, point B, point C. It's not designed to be that. Visions are designed to be seen as a whole. Also, parables. If you've studied parables, and I've had a couple Bible studies where we've talked about parables, when you hear parable, I want you to think punchline. When you hear parable, I want you to think punchline. When Jesus spoke using parables, he would give you all these details and these things that would connect to those, the people who are there in that day, Samaritans and tax collectors. He would connect to things around them to try to get them to a singular point, to a punchline that they would never forget. 
okay? And that would happen over and over again. It's like you and I are hanging out, and I said, guess what? Three men walk into a bar. Okay, so you know that I'm starting a joke. You don't stop and say, well, what were they wearing? Like, well, no, I don't know. No. Three men walked into a bar. There was a this and a this and a that. And you're like, well, what kind of shoes were they wearing? No, you're missing it. The point of a parable isn't in the details. It's in the punchline. You mess up the joke if you give too many details. The only details you use are enough to get involved to get the punchline made clear and obvious and unforgettable. So even when God was speaking in and through the prophets, oftentimes the purpose wasn't to focus on the details, it was the punchline. And usually the punchline is connected to some of those major overall themes. This is who I am. This is how I'm saving you. This is the Jesus who's coming. This is how you connect to the glory of God. So oftentimes it points to those things. So remember, when we look at prophecies, we're thinking visions and parables. Not only those, but those are definitely included in how God intended to use his prophets. The genre and structure of a book plays a great deal into the interpretive nature of that book. Okay, did you catch that? So if you're trying to woo, okay, most of you are married, but when you were younger, if you, when you're trying to woo that lady you're interested in, you would probably never go outside her window, open up a car manual, and just say, and the transmitter. This, you know, I don't know anything about cars, so I can't go any farther with that illustration. <laughs> but, um, but you wouldn't open up a car manual and read that outside her window. Why? It's the wrong genre. You're, you're using it for the wrong reason, with the wrong means. Um, so you would never also pick up a poem to try to fix your car. Like, you know how that works. So it's important to understand the structure and the nature and the genre of the book. Structure and purpose speaks to how we are to handle the words and details of the text. It should be noted that many interpretations in the last 100 years have not understood, catch this, that while John is writing in Greek, this book follows the characteristics of the Hebrew prophets. So even though it was written in Greek, and John wrote it in the New Testament, it is so interconnected with Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, Hosea, that it is interlinked with Hebraic thought, the way the Old Testament prophets were written. So if we disconnect those two things, and we don't go back to the Old Testament prophets to help us understand this New Testament prophecy, we're going to miss what he's trying to say. So the two have to be interconnected together. Uh, there are three ways of interpreting or looking at passages dealing with the distant future. One, literal. We view it as just plain speech. No symbolism, no metaphor in use. Apocalyptic, heavy symbolism, metaphor, allegory, parable, and focus on pictures, not so much focus on paragraphs. Pictures that move you, not paragraphs that inform you. Types, events, people, and places that become a model for events, people, and places in the future. The Old Testament is full of these. According to the book of Hebrews, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the Exodus, David, Malachi, nope, Melchizedek, all these were pointing to the cross. They were pointing to the person and work of Jesus. They were pointing to our need for a Messiah. So they were their own thing, but they were pointing to something greater. They were pointing to something else. And oftentimes that is also happening in prophecy. Revelation is tricky. It's a mixture. Revelation is several genres. It's part epistle, uh, it's also part apocalypse, and it's part prophecy. All those things are kind of intermingled in there. Likely, 
interpretive extremism should be avoided on either side, okay? Likely, interpretive extremism, which I'm going to describe here in a second, should be avoided. Uh, well, here's an example. Some people want to take everything absolutely literally in the book of Revelation. I was talking with one of the elders, and he said that he was in a church, or his parents were in a church. He was there, and he was listening to them, and they read Revelation 9-6. It says, and in those days, men will seek death, and they will not find it. He then went on to talk about this is clearly teaching us about a zombie apocalypse. Like, like that's what he taught, okay? Because he took it super literally. Now, the walking dead was not a thing in the first century. Like, they didn't have a reference point of zombies. I don't think that was something they were thinking of. But from our perspective, from our point of view, he read that, he took that as literal as he could from his context, from his world, and he said, a zombie apocalypse is coming. You should be ready for that. That is part of the tribulation time. That's taking it, in my point of view, a little extreme. You've maybe gone too far. Dwight Pentecost, I would say he aggressively states, it was seen that the purpose of the allegorical method is not to interpret scripture, but to pervert the true meaning of the scriptures, albeit under the guise of seeking a deeper or more spiritual meaning. So I like this commentator a lot, but I don't completely agree with this statement. To say that when somebody looks at it from a different point of view, that, the, that he judges his heart, that he's not trying to be true to the intention of the passage, that makes me nervous. We should not rush to judge the hearts of those who have a different view from us. We must also remember that Hosea 12.10 informs us about God's intention and use of prophecy. It includes visions. They're symbolic. It includes parables, which are also often allegorical in nature. So if God told us that's how he's going to do, and that's what he does, we can't point to someone and question their heart. We just have to be slow to do that. We can disagree, and we can discuss how we dis disagree, but we shouldn't point to their hearts and say, I love God more, you love God less, because you view it one way and I view it another way. We just have to be careful. Walverd, who's also a literalist himself, identifies over 25 uses of symbolism. Uh, Self-identified in the book of Revelation. If you go to his commentary, Walverd is a Dallas theological guy. He's one of the kings of dispensational theology. I have tons of his books. I referenced his books all throughout all my classes. I think he's great. On pages 29 to 30, in his commentary on Revelation, he has like two pages of symbolism in the book of Revelation. Uh, likewise, so he identifies it. But on the other side, taking everything as allegorical or taking everything as symbolism, that's also dangerous. To say, I only take it literally or I only take it symbolically, both of those are a little dangerous. There has to be some mixture in the middle. A literalist, John Walward, even says, you're going to see it in Revelation. In the book of Revelation itself, it identifies multiple symbols that it chooses to use. For example, it talks about the seven stars, and then Revelation says, oh, those are the seven angels of the seven churches. And then it talks about seven lampstands, and then the book of Revelation says, those seven lampstands, those are the churches. So Revelation uses the symbol and then just says, oh, by the way, that's a symbol, it's pointing to that. So if you say there's no symbols, then like you're saying the book itself is lying to us because it says and identifies some of its own symbols. There will be some symbols. Commentators, page nine. Commentators agree that the numbers, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, which we see those numbers in the book of Revelation, all reference to the same length of time 
it's a reference from the book of Daniel. Yet three and a half years equals 365 days times 3.5 equals 277.5 days. What just happened there? Did we just find a contradiction in scripture? Should we, should we just toss that Bible? Are we done with it? Only if we think that the author was being absolutely literal and absolutely price, precise when he said three and a half years, 42 months, and 1,260 days. If we believe he's being absolutely precise, then yeah, you just ran into a contradiction. But almost every commentator would agree. The point isn't the number of days, it's a period of time. So even like even John Walford, who holds things literally, would say this has more to do with a period of time. Most would agree that the point is that God has a set period of time symbolized by these numbers. We may not know the exact number of days. So when you see the book for what it is, then it's totally fine. It totally works. He's just kind of giving you a feel for about how long it's going to be. If you hold it to the every detail, things start to get hard to understand. Popular interpretive methods. Okay, you ready for this? Here we go. Several methods of interpreting revelation have been suggested and used through the centuries. Some lean towards being entirely symbolic, while others view it as a timeline of detailed literal events. Some view it as, e as entirely future. Others view it as primarily filled already in the past. And others describe it as speaking to the entire church age, past, present, and future, all at the same time. Preterists. They hold that many of the Old Testament prophecies are already fulfilled by the events of 60 to 70 AD in the destruction of the temple and the temple or soon hereafter. Therefore, they put the date of revelation before the destruction of the temple uh, and the book was primarily written to the audience that received it, not so much to you and me. That's their point of view. So often, post-millennialists are that. Historis historists, however you say that. Revelation speaks to the entire church age, past, present, and future. Historical events. Tribulation is seen throughout church history, even in many places today. So their point of view is that Revelation is speaking to the entire church age. And we're like, well, how, how is that possible? Like, clearly, there's no great tribulation taking place right now. Here's something that's just important for us to remember as middle-class Americans or wherever you land in that. Our experience is different than the experience of other Christians who have lived before us. Our experience is different than other Christians who live today in other parts of the world. So you and I are all on a bus. This bus is kind of going through history, and each of us have our own window that we kind of get to look out of. So we have a different point of view on what's happening outside of our window. You haven't sat in other places on the bus. You haven't sat and seen what they're experiencing, what they see out their windows. If you're a Christian right now who's living in Pakistan, and you're reading about the Great Tribulation, you're assuming that it's already taking place. I've been told, and this stat might be off, but someone who professes Christ publicly in that country usually has about 27 to 30 days to live because they're going to get killed. So if someone's in a family of people who have made professions of Christ, likely you, the new believer, have already watched a mom or a sister or a friend get murdered, beaten to death for their faith. So when you're reading Revelation, you're hearing, oh, the wrath of God is coming down, things are gonna get tough. You're not like, oh no, I'm gonna not be able to be in my nice home or drive my nice car. Like, you're worried about making it to dinner 
Like, how can it get worse than what it already is? So that person's position on the bus is a very different life experience than yours and mine. When they hear the word tribulation, they just assume they're in the middle of it. How does it get worse than not knowing if you're going to make it to dinner? You already have friends and family members who have been murdered and killed for their faith, and you don't know when you're next. So their point of view on tribulation is very different than your point of view and my point of view on tribulation. So we just need to be aware. Uh, scripture still speaks as Scripture, but there are people at different places in history, in different places on the planet, having very different experiences than you and me. The church is growing in impact, and Christ's kingdom is also growing and expanding. Revelation is viewed as a, with a newspaper approach, leading to large-scale disagreement over events and fulfillment. So this point of view, this way of understanding it, whenever you see a huge figure who's like an antichrist figure, you could almost say that's kind of an antichrist figure there. Nero, um, Hitler, or whoever you pick out from throughout history, oftentimes they would view those as antichrist figures. The idealist. Here, symbols do not relate to historical events. They are timeless spiritual truths. Pictures of judgment reference God's judgments on sinners at all times in the world. The victory of Christ is seen as through the ages. The beast refers to all anti-Christian empires at times in church history. The millennium is not a future event, but a final cycle of the book describing the church age. Though the theology of this method may be consistent with Scripture as a whole, it disconnects revelation from both history and the future, okay? So that's, some people view it that way. We've got two more. The futuristic. Uh, they view revelation as starting in, they view revelation starting in chapter four as a discussion of the future, okay? So the premillennialist is gonna hold this. Revelation then outlines many things that are yet to come, at times literal, at times symbolic. And most everything is pointing towards the future, the futurist at times will push a hard literal interpretation and create what seems to be an outline that is sometimes forced or maybe unintended, but they view everything as future yet to come. The eclectic. Many scholars in the fast, past few decades, and I'm going to introduce you to a few of these guys, prefer to combine some of these views. They take the best of each and push out the weaknesses. The solution is to allow preterist, idealist, and futurist methods to interact in such a way that the strengths are maximized and the weaknesses are minimized. Top of page 10. So remember this. No one can deny that there isn't some symbolism. Revelation begins by using symbolism, and revelation itself often identifies its own symbols. Stars represent angels. Lampstands represent churches. The morning star refers to Christ. The key of David represents the power to open and close doors. The seven lampstands of fire represent the Holy Spirit. There are symbols right there being used at the beginning, and then they're identified by the book. One would likely assume that symbols continue through the book. It may not identify every single one, because it's speaking of a time yet to come, they wouldn't even know the reference point, but symbolism likely continues throughout the book. The question is, how much symbolism is there, and what is the nature or intent of the author and genre in the use of these symbols. So that's the ongoing question. So depending on how, where you land there and how you interpret things, it takes you in very different directions. Do you land in New York City? Do you land in Washington, D.C.? Did you end up in Tampa, Florida? Okay, depending on your point of view on interpretation. So back in the appendix, which we're not going to go to, I spent a little bit more time discussing different interpretive methods and where it takes you. 
Covenant theology, that's one direction it can take you. Dispensational theology, that's another direction, and there's classic and there's progressive, and if that excites you, I put it in the back, but we're not going to talk about it today, okay? So some of you are smiling. It's, it's back there, so go ahead and enjoy that. Um, let's go to the next page. I just want to show you these. We're not going to work through them. When it comes to these major different positions, this is how it affects interpretation of different parts of Revelation. On the bottom, this is how it reflects your theological point of view on different parts of Revelation, depending on your interpretive method. All right, so we're going to work through these commentators. Go to, verse, to page 12, and then we're going to get our little break. Okay, so we're going to talk about some different commentators and their points of view that they've had. Here we go. John Walvoord. So what I did is I went through and I read commentaries on Revelation. Not the whole thing, but I'd read through the introduction, their point of view, their methods, to understand their different ways of looking at the book of Revelation. And I summarized them as much as I could to make it as easy for you to ingest and understand their point of view. So these are big, fat books, and I turn it into four sentences. So even if it seems hard, know it could have been much harder, okay? Page 12. John Walvoord holds to a futurist, literal view of Revelation. He interprets Revelation much like a timeline. In contrast to other approaches, the book of Revelation, the futurist position, allows a more literal interpretation of the specific prophecies of the book. Through recognizing the frequent symbolism in various prophecies, the events foreshadowed by these symbols and their interpretation are regarded as being fulfilled in a normal way. Walver's position does not stand against symbolism. Symbolism occurs throughout Scripture as a vehicle of divine revelation, but it is undoubtedly true that the final book of the New Testament, because of its apocalyptic character, contains more symbols than any other book of the New Testament. So he's a literalist, but he recognizes their symbolism. Referencing all the numbers used in Revelation, he states, these numbers may often be understood literally, but even when understood in this way, they often carry with them a symbolic meaning. If you like charts, here's your chart. On the next page, there is your chart. If you're going to take the whole thing as, liter as literal as absolutely possible, this is a pretty good chart describing what it's going to look like. So if you view, or you're trying to consider how you view Revelation, this is one of the ways of viewing it. Like straight up timeline. Boom, 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 boom. That's what this chart is. Okay, I'm not going to go over that chart, but it's there, so you can go over it on your own. Here's a couple more commentators. Leon Morris. All these guys are great, like John Walvoord's great. All these guys are great, but they do have different points of view. Leon Morris carefully reminds us that we must remember the original audience as we study Revelation. Revelation was sent to a little persecuted church, a frustrated church, one which did not know how, what to make of a situation that it found itself in. John writes to meet the needs of that church. Okay, so Morris's point of view is don't forget the church it was written to. John's conclusion as to the location of the ultimate power is just as relevant for for them as it is for us here in this century. So Morris is not a preterist, he's not a historist, but he sees symbolism throughout. Interestingly, he spends time arguing that Revelation should be seen more as prophecy, less as apocalyptic. Let's go to Grant Osborne. Uh, so the approach of this commentary, Grant Osborne's commentary, is similar, but the futurist rather than the idealist position is primary. My study of the ancient apocalyptic works and of the book of Revelation has led me to believe that John's visions were primarily intended to describe events that will end world history. So Grant Osborne says these things are yet to come. Osborne, Osborne also holds that many of these symbols spoke to the people of that day. 
okay? So he's kind of saying, I got a foot in both positions. It's yet to come, but I do see how the people who received the letter benefited and were blessed by this letter. Okay, so Osborne also holds that many of the symbols spoke to the people of that day and to the people of our day. As the visions of the beast were certainly recognizable to the first century saints as the Roman Empire. Now, there still is a, a beast yet to come, according to Osborne, but when they looked up and they saw that, for them to say, this seems like the beast, he wouldn't say, you're wrong, there's one yet to come, but yeah, there is this reality that that's how this would feel to you. The present is addressed through parallels with the future. He will also highlight universal truths that are expressed in Revelation while holding to the understanding to be a futurist. Two more, Tim Chester. None of these approaches, preterist, historist, futurist, or idealist, quite capture the sophistication of what John is doing. Tim Chester believes that John is drawing on an Old Testament prophetic critique of economic injustice, imperial power, and idolatrous claims, and reapplying that critique to his day. In doing so, he gives us a model that we can and should follow in our day. He says it is not as simple as identifying the Pope or Napoleon or the rise of communism as a clear fulfillment of any passage. Revelation should not be read as a single sequence from beginning to end. Each set of seven ends with a final judgment and the triumph of God. So it is impossible to read these as seven consecutive periods of history. So what he's saying is he's saying he rejects the timeline approach. The phrase, it is done, in Revelation 16, 17, for example, is repeated in 21, 6, which suggests that re they're revisiting the same event. These different stages should be understood as points of view, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are talking about the same thing from different points of view, rather than a timeline. So the bowls, the trumpets, and the seals, he would say those things are all describing the same thing, not 21 judgments, but seven judgments described in three different ways, is how he would land there. Here's the last one. This one is crazy interesting. Um, so Peter Gentry, this guy, so he was at the seminary that I went to. I went to, when I went to the seminary, we had a, a day where you kind of went in and they kind of walked you around the seminaries before you signed up and paid any money. And they got you, they gave you the opportunity to meet some of the professors. So I was sitting in a luncheon and different professors would get up and they would talk about who they are, the books they're working on, what they taught, and a little bit about themselves. Peter Gentry got up. He was much older. His beard was like, it's glorious. It's like this big. He looks like Father Time. So Peter Gentry stands up, and all he says is this. I teach because I have a burning fire for God. And then he sat back down. Like, I don't even think he told us his name. And all of us are just like, what was that? And I just remember in that moment, I just said, I'm coming to the seminary. Like, I did, I'm like, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you teach. But if that's why you're here, and that's what you're most excited about, and that's the thing you want me to walk away with, I can buy into that. So this guy is very interesting, okay? So agree with him or disagree with him, he has devoted his entire life to teaching people because he is on fire and loves God. And I took some of his classes. The dude would talk about Hebrew, and he'd have tears in his eyes. Like he would talk about how verbs work so that you better understand who God the Father is, and he would have tears in his big, thick beard, okay? So we may completely disagree or we may completely agree with this guy, but at the end of the day, we're not going to judge his heart, okay? He's trying his best to understand and teach Scripture just like you are and I am. So let's look at it from his point of view. So in his book, How to Read and Understand Biblical Prophecy, uh, he turns to the Old Testament prophecy to determine, to determine how best to interpret Revelation. We talked about that. There's deep connection, okay? 
between the Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. So he goes back to that. He's an Old Testament specialist. So he says Revelation references images from Ezekiel, Daniel, and Joel, just to name a few. Catch this. Repetition is at the heart of Hebrew discourse. The normal pattern in Hebrew literature is to consider a topic in a recursive manner. In other words, he, a progressively repetitive manner. That's how oftentimes in Hebraic thought and in the prophecies, that's how people were taught. It's like your son comes up to you. Um, he's not here. But say your son comes up, your son, not my son, just a random son. I, I need to stop talking about my kids up front all the time. Uh, so a random son, a random son comes up to you, and he just by accident took a frog, stuffed it in his pocket, left it there all day, pulled it back out. This frog is now limp, okay? So now you're ready to have a conversation with your son. You say something like, you know, you probably put, should, put, shouldn't put frogs in your pocket. That frog, he shouldn't go in your pocket. Next time you catch a frog, don't put him in a pocket. So I just said the same thing three different ways. Why? Because my, my son needs to hear that you've got to stop putting frogs in your pocket. You do it all the time with your kids. If you're a teacher, you do it with your students. You just repeat things in different ways over and over again. It's really important. It's a great way to teach people and help you remember things. He would say in the Old Testament, that's how the prophecies were taught. And if we're interconnecting Old Testament thought, Hebraic thought, with how it's being written in the New Testament, we've got to keep our antennas up and ask the question, are we, we, were seeing, a, are we seeing a recursive pattern of teaching here also in New Testament prophecy? Let's look at Isaiah. As an example, Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet containing prophecy already fulfilled and some yet to be fulfilled, itself is not written as a timeline. There are some historical markers, but the content is not a timeline. Isaiah uses a recursive form of teaching, a progressive repetition through the book. Hearing this teaching once would be like listening to a song through a mono speaker. Did you ever have one of those? Like, that just doesn't put out a very good sound, okay? You don't, you don't catch a lot. It's not deep. It's not rich. It doesn't feel like a surround sound. It's just a mono speaker. So hearing something once kind of feels like that. But the book of Isaiah goes through the same thing seven different times. So it's more like sitting in a room with this kind of a speaker system, a 7.1 decked out digital Dolby surround sound. That kind where you're watching the television and you see a helicopter fly on the screen. It feels like it just flew around you in the room. You remember, have you ever had that happen? That is the coolest thing. So when Isaiah teaches what he's trying to get across, he teaches it seven different times. So when you hear something repeated and different things are nuanced and referenced and emphasized, all of a sudden you see things and hear things on a whole nother level. It's like sitting and listening to a sound system like this versus just the mono speaker. So you hear nuances. There's a greater distinction of instruments and the sound is fuller and more beautiful. So as he goes through the book of Isaiah, you can see there one through seven, each of those represent a cycle of him teaching something. So an individual cycle looks like this. He talks about the, the disloyalty of Israel and then the fact that God is going to be faithful to his unfaithful people and he's going to transform Zion. He's going to restore and renew his people. So you see this cycle, even just in Isaiah 1 through 2, 4, that's the first cycle. The cycles get bigger and more complex till you see seven cycles of him teaching basically the same thing over and over again. Normally, when you're trying to understand a verse, what do you do? You look above the verse and you look below the verse, right? If you see a verse, what did it say just before? What does it say just after? In Isaiah, you want to do that, but then you also look side to side. So if I'm trying to figure out what this means, I go to the first, the cycle before, and I go to the cycle after in the next cycle 
to see what Isaiah says about it in each of the seven cycles that he taught. So, the book of Isaiah can be divided up into seven distinct conversations or discourses. This is what Gentry does with the book of Revelation. Last paragraph. This form of teaching is very common in Hebrew literature. Revelation has a deep connection to Old Testament prophecy, Ezekiel, Joel, Isaiah, Daniel. Even though Revelation is written in Greek, its roots are found in Hebrew thought, Hebrew genre, Hebrew style. These realities lead Gentry and many others to the conclusion that Revelation likely reflects Hebraic form of recursive teaching using repetition, not a timeline, as the foundation for the book of Revelation. The chart found below shows several, so seven points, each of them taught seven times in seven different ways throughout the book of Revelation. If you look at the next chart, this is very different. This is putting Revelation like this, okay, instead of a timeline. If you spend some time looking at this, this doesn't feel forced. I expected this to feel forced. It doesn't feel forced. You see it landing at judgment over and over again. But what happens, what's so interesting about the Revelation is it lands judgment, 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 judgment. And at the end, it lands on the glory of God and the river of life and the salvation, the consummation of all things. There's like a twist at the end. But you see, like, we're not going to go over it tonight, but spend some time looking at that. By his book, it's a very interesting point of view. He is... He is literally, he's literally smarter than, than almost any of us, uh, maybe several of us combined. Uh, so we can say that we think he's wrong, but I, let me just tell you, if you and him sat down face-to-face -face and wanted to get into it about this topic, likely, if someone else is watching, you're probably going to lose because he could argue with you in one of 13 languages. Okay? When he writes a book, he, goes, he writes it in 13 languages so people don't have to translate it for him. Like, he's a very, very smart guy, and he knows his stuff. And when he dedicated this book, he dedicated it to his friends at Dallas Theological Seminary because they're buddies. Like, he knows those guys. He's written books with Dallas Theological Seminary guys, and they love each other and they care about each other. So yeah, he was probably being a little cheeky when he did that, but you know, he, he dedicated it to his Dallas Theological Seminary buddies, and they have yet to respond to it. It might take a few more years. He just wrote it in 2018. But point is, is that this is not a point of division. It's just a point of conversation. It's not a point of division. It's just a point of conversation. What time is it? How are we doing? It's break time. Let's break. See you back here at 8. And then we're going to push through section 3. All right, how you guys doing? Was that okay? The break, that helped, right? It helped me. I went up, had a granola bar, protein shake, did three push-ups. I'm good to go. So this is a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest by a guy named Richard Baxter. This is an old-school Puritan book, but it really is just, and I have not read it, so don't, like, don't be impressed by the size of it. I've read like the first 10 pages, um, and they're really good. I can't tell you about the next 900, but the first 10 are excellent. Um, <laughs> double thumbs up. Uh, but <clears throat> the, it just spends time talking about how fun it is to think about heaven. Sometimes if we get wrapped up in the wrong details, where it robs our joy instead of increases our joy, then we've missed something. So this is just a good reminder of the focus and the result of knowing God's word correctly. It should lead to this. So at the beginning, there's a guy who's like doing a biography of Richard Baxter, introducing us to how he was viewed and what he was like. And <clears throat> he describes him like this. 
Among his contemporaries, there were men of equal talents and of more amicable dispositions and of greater learning. But there was no man in whom there appears to have been so little of earth <clears throat> and so much of heaven. I'm going to read that sentence again. But there was no man in whom there appears to have been so little of earth and so much of heaven, so small a portion of alloy of humanity and so large a portion of all that is celestial. He felt scarcely any of the attraction to this world, but felt as manifested the most powerful affinity for the world to come. He's a guy who is just described as unearthly in multiple times throughout this. Like he was so excited about the coming of Christ. He was so thrilled by the thought of heaven that he would spend time just meditating and writing and thinking about that reality. 900 pages later, this is the book he put together. Uh, but that's how I want us to be known. Uh, I don't want us to be known for arguing over details as much as being overjoyed and overwhelmed by the love of Christ and the fact that he's coming back for us, okay? Again, blessed are those who spend time looking at the end times and reading the book of Revelation. Not overwhelmed, confused, and frustrated are those, but blessed are those. So if you would, join me on page 17. So what page 17 is, is kind of like a summary of what we've just looked at. So looking at all those different points of view on how to interpret things, here are some basic or general rules that I would kind of suggest as we move forward into our own personal studies of this topic. One, the Old Testament prophecies must be integrated into the framework of New Testament prophecies. Realize that we have much to learn from the Old Testament prophecies that inform us in how to understand and see and view New Testament prophecies. Old Testament audiences must be considered during interpretation. Whenever you're in the Old Testament, don't immediately jump to the end of days every time you're trying to figure out what a prophecy is talking about. Oftentimes, prophecies were referencing what was happening in their day. Many prophecies are giving, given an if-then format. If you do this, then that will happen. Consistently, those prophecies are already done. The then would have already happened. No one knows the hour or day of the return of Christ, and his return will be unexpected like a thief in the night. So at the beginning, I made the joke that, you know, if, if I'm going to give everybody a date and some Kool-Aid, that some of the pastors are going to leave. But, like, be aware of that. There are people that are going to tell you, like, it's right about now, or it's going to be right about then. It's going to be unexpected, like a thief in the night. If you knew when the thief was going to come, you would put up a security system. But what he's saying is, you don't know when, so you're not going to be ready for it. Even though we long to be and expect to be, we don't know when it's going to happen. Some interpreters work with the principle that the language of the prophecies should be interpreted literally as long as, they can, as it can reasonably be followed. This is an illegitimate demand because it leaves the decision of when to interpret literally to the modern reader not to the author and to the audience to which it was written. It doesn't matter if you and I want it to be literal or not literal. The question is, was it written with the intention of it being literal or not literal? Our point of view doesn't matter as much as their point of view. What were they trying to communicate? How was it understood by the original audience? That tells us more about what the author intended than what we would prefer. It goes back to the Walking Dead thing that we saw with the zombies. Like, if we use our frame of reference and our context, we're going to miss their frame of reference and their context. Our preferences don't matter. 
It's their framework, what was going on in their mind and in their interactions that matters in interpreting it correctly. Examples, Revelation 3.12, those who are victorious, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. No, he's not going to turn you into a pillar and put you to hold up the building. Like it's not literal, okay? Revelation 11.5, do we believe that fire will literally come out of the, two, of the mouths of the two evangelists? There's a picture where it says fire comes out of their mouths. I mean, maybe you could hold that, but like most of the original readers would have viewed that as symbolism for the content of the words coming out of their mouths, not actual fire. It's really hard to share the gospel clearly when fire comes out of your mouth. So likely it was words that felt like fire, okay? If you go that direction, you're gonna be looking for dragons, beasts, and maybe zombies. Again, we should use clear passages to shed light on unclear passages. If something feels unclear, maybe that's its intention. If something feels unclear, maybe it's intended to be unclear. So if you go out of your way <clears throat> to try to make it clear, Maybe you're missing the point, okay? When you're making the details the main thing, you're probably off when it comes to this type of literature. The main thing is always the main thing. So we must move from the larger picture to the details, not from the details to the larger picture. Revelation is an apocalypse. There are many apocalyptic books written, okay? So we know about those. There is a typical two-fold purpose to prophetic literature. The author intends to speak for the encouragement and the correction of the audience, and oftentimes has a future audience in mind. So we just have to be careful. Sometimes when we go into Isaiah and Jeremiah, our tendency is to think, all of this is talking about a day yet to come. Sometimes it's talking about something near. Sometimes it's talking about something that's far. I wanted my friend to just impress this on your mind. He, he wanted to, to tell you about this. It is near. That was a little longer than I remember it being. Um, maybe it just felt long because I was standing up here. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully you never forget that. So when you go and read Isaiah next time, I want you to think about Grover, okay? So it's, when you're reading a prophecy, the question is, is it near? Is it far, okay? Because sometimes it's near and sometimes it's far. And if you don't remember, just type in near, far, Grover into Google, and you can watch that over and over again, <laughs> like I did with my kids last night to make sure we thought that was a good use of the video. 
and I'm not totally sure if it was or not, but you, you got to see it anyways. All right. The book of Revelation relates a series of visions, not a systematic account about the end times. A sequence of visions is not necessarily chronological all the time, like a series of events would be. This is interesting. Daniel is told to seal up the vision because it concerns the distant future, while John is told not to seal up the words of the prophecy because the time is near. The construction of a timeline that inserts verses and events without Scripture intentionally informing us of it being a timeline can be a little dangerous. We just have to be careful. We don't want to force something into Scripture that Scripture did not intend. We have to be careful of newspaper theology to interpret Revelation. So if we've decided that we know when and where and how Armageddon is going to take place, then we end up doing some weird things. Like, again, I've mentioned this guy named John Walver before, and I like him a lot, but he wrote this book, Armageddon, Oil, and the Middle East Crisis. Now, it was written in the 90s when there was an oil crisis, and he connected it all to the likelihood or possibility of it being Armageddon. I know that because I have this book on my shelf. Some of you do also. Was he right? No, you can't go to the newspaper to figure out how to interpret Revelation. You just have to be careful if you find yourself doing that. We must first view and understand Revelation in light of those major themes of Scripture that we talked about before. I gave you two charts here just to go a little bit deeper into that. We'll go to page 20. You can look at those charts later. A guy named Wayne Grudem has a good point at the top of page 20. He says, evangelicals who hold to these various end times positions all agree that Scripture is inerrant, and they have a commitment to believe whatever is taught by Scripture. Their differences concern the interpretation of various passages relating to these events. But their differences on these matters should be seen as matters of secondary importance, not as differences over primary doctrinal matters. In other words, you can agree to disagree on some of these things, and you can have fellowship and joy with people who have a different point of view than you do. Session three. So we're going to finish by going through session three. Uh, We've been talking about preliminary considerations. We've been talking about different points of view of interpretation. Session three talks about where we all agree. So this is much easier. Here we get to look up lots of verses and say, amen, amen, amen. So that's what this section is about. Uh, Session four, which we're going to cover next Thursday, if you'd like to come, is where we go into a little bit deeper debate over those different positions. If you're into that, that's a good environment for us to have that conversation, even have some interaction about it, which will be great. Let's start with this, the return of Christ. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The second time he comes, it's not because of sin. It's because he's coming to take you and me home. It will be sudden. James 5, 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Revelation twenty two twenty. surely I am coming soon. The response, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Titus 2, 12 and 13, it talks about us awaiting our blessed hope. That is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grudem says this, good statement. To some extent then, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is like a measure or a measuring stick of the spiritual condition of our own lives at that moment. 
In other words, the more you're longing to see his face is a bit of an indication of how much you love him. When someone you care about has been gone for a while, the longer they're gone, the more you should be thinking about the moment when you get to see them again. You can almost measure someone's love for someone by the earnestness of their heart to see that person again. Same here with us and the Lord Jesus Christ. To be ready for Christ's return is to be faithfully obeying Him in the present, actively engaged in whatever work He has called us to. It will be, so it will be sudden, it will be soon. This is an interesting thing. It will be soon. Every generation, it will be soon. So generations have come, generations have gone, but for every generation, they need to understand it as it will be soon. The timing of Christ's return is both unknown and perceived as imminent. Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So it's not, I don't expect, so I'm not going to get ready. Rather, it's this point of view. I don't know when he's coming, so I'm going to be ready. Okay? One thing I like to try to do, and I'm not very successful at this, is having our, our house ready for visitors at any moment. How do we do with that, Jen? Um, so th th that's not always successful. I have a dog, I have kids, and I have me in the house. So it makes it really hard to keep the house where I like it to be. But if I'm always expecting him to come, then I'm always getting myself ready to see him face to face. That's part of how we think. Matthew 25, 13, the top of page 22. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Mark 13, 32 and 33, but of that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your citizenship, your homeland, the place that you will be connected to for the rest of eternity, your actual official home, isn't here it's there. Your citizenship is somewhere that you long to be and you've never been. Your citizenship is there. Even now, it is there. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is, present tense, is at hand. Revelation 3, 11, nope, 1, 3, the time is near. Like it, it, right now, it is near. It is true that the early church lived in expectancy of the return of Christ. Like Peter, Paul, John, they were expecting Christ to come back. And it is the nature of biblical prophecy to make it possible for every generation to live in expect expectancy of the end. Every generation is waiting for him to return, and they're excited about his return, and they're wanting in this generation, in this moment, for him to come back. It's always been that way. So the next couple sections here says, don't certain things need to take place first? Like, don't all the nations need to know? Aren't there certain signs and things that are supposed to happen first? Like, why are we expecting him at any moment when it seems like there's certain things that are supposed to happen? I don't have time to go into those, so I'm gonna let you read that section on your own. Let's go to number C on page 23. We're just gonna have to jump a little bit. Number C, it says, about his return, it will be personal, it will be visible, and it will be a bodily return. This return will be personal. Christ himself, not his influence or his teaching 
or his spirit-mediated presence will come to earth. It is him. He will return bodily. Just as he left, he will return. Okay? So he left on the clouds and ascended into heaven in some way, in that same way, he will then return. Okay? He will return. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. I'm just going to summarize some of these for you. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Acts 1.11. Christ will come in the same way that he left. So we saw, they saw him leave, and the angel said he will return in the same way. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3, it says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You're not going to be ready for it. It's not when you expect. John 14, 3, he's talking to his disciples. Now, he's gotten to the point where he's told the disciples, I'm going to be leaving. There's a point in time when I won't be with you anymore. And the response of the disciples is their hearts became anxious and troubled, anxious and troubled. And he used this truth to calm their anxious hearts. He said, even though you feel troubled, you feel overwhelmed, know this. When I leave, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will return. I will take you to be there with me forever. You, Christian, are going to have days when you feel troubled, anxious, and overwhelmed. This promise to them is the same promise to you. In your darkest moments, in your hardest days, Jesus is still preparing a place for you. And there's a moment in time when you do not expect. It will be sudden. It will be soon. He will come back. And he'll take you home to be with him forever. That longing in your heart, that citizenship that you have not yet been able to experience, one day it will be yours. One day he will come and take you to be with him. D, it will be triumphant. Hebrews 9.28, he appears the second time to save those who eagerly wait for him. Acts 3, 20 and 21, he will return. It will be a time of restoration. It's all good stuff when he returns. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, he grants relief from persecution. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, he delivers from the wrath to come. And these verses continue to get you excited about his return. All Christians also believe in the resurrection of the dead and judgment. John 6, 38 through 40 talks about the fact that all that have been given to Jesus, he will lose none of them. And then Jesus says, I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus says about those who believe in him, I will not lose any of them, and I will raise them up on the last day. John 11, 23 through 24, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. We will live even after we die. Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Not the lastborn of the dead, the firstborn of the dead. We will follow him as we are resurrected to be with him forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21 says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection from the dead. Let's jump down to 1 John 3.2. Uh, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. There's a day coming 
when you and I will see him just as he is, and when we see him just as he is, he's going to make us to be like him. There's a day coming when you're going to see him face to face. You're going to look upon your Savior, and when that day comes, you will have been completely transformed, remade into the eternal person with the body you're going to have forever to celebrate and to know him and to have that face-to-face -face interaction with him forever. Philippians 3.21 says, talks about him who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we believe that there is going to be a resurrection. You will receive a resurrected body that will be imperishable, eternal, cannot sin to live in the presence of God forever. There's some questions about timing. I will let you read that section yourself. Let's go to the last page. I'm likely going to take you five minutes over. I'm going to make it worth it. Page 26. Uh, here's some summary statements. Unbelievers, those who don't know the Lord, enter into the everlasting destruction of hell and ultimately into the lake of fire. Conservative evangelicals have always believed that because the Bible pretty clearly says it. It is sobering, okay? And you and I aren't going to heaven because we deserved it. It's because we've been graciously saved. So that is your destination and mine, if not for the gracious, merciful work of a beautiful Savior. In resurrected bodies, believers will live forever in the presence of God, freed from sin, sorrow, and suffering. Revelation tells us tears are wiped away in an infinitely better life that will be enjoyed forever. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Uh, Paul is speaking of his longing. Uh, I'm going I'm to read this. I don't want to miss this. So in, Reve in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is taking some time to talk about his point of view on eternity. And in verse 21, he says this to the Philippian church, for to me, to live is Christ, so he's defined what it looks like to live this life. To live this life is to live it in and through Christ. But to die is gain. So living is pretty awesome because living here is being described as being in and with Christ. But to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart to be with Christ, for that is very much better. So he sees the worth of remaining on in the flesh, in other words, staying alive to do ministry, because he sees the fruit of it and the beauty of it. But he has this desire, this longing. Inside of you, there should be some friction I can't wait for tomorrow to live my life for Jesus. Oh, but I can't wait to go home to be with Jesus. There needs to be a friction within our hearts where both are taking place. A desire to live our life for Christ, but a longing to go home. Where according to Paul, it is very much better. On your best day, it doesn't even compare to a single day there. Not a moment there. A moment there is better than your greatest vacation ever. It is very, very much better. There will be a final and full consummation of the kingdom of God in the new creation. 
God will redeem, restore, and renew all things, culminating in a new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to go here to the end of Revelation. Let's just enjoy a little Revelation at the end to close us up. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6. I think we're going to put them on the screen. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. In chapter 22, he talks about the river of life and the tree of life, and he says, Then he showed me a river of life, as clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants bond will serve Him. They will see His face. This isn't talking about random people. This is talking about you and me. We're going to be there, and we are going to see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads, our foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp nor light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, these are the words of the faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds these words of the prophecy of this book. Let's go to the very end. 22, 16 through the end. I, Jesus. So, when we were talking earlier about the fact that we see Jesus throughout the whole Testament, we're told in Colossians that he spoke the world into being. So, the first words uttered in the Bible are Jesus saying, let there be. The Bible starts with the powerful words of Jesus. Here we come to the very end. I, Jesus. Okay, did you catch that? Is that not powerful? Where does it start? With Him. Where does it end? With Him. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you the things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part of the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. 
He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus. Jesus says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you spoke it into being, and at the end you say, it is done. And you are preparing us each and every day for the moment when we see you face to face. And that moment when we see you face to face, it's an unending forever moment in a beautiful relationship with you forever. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your presence in our lives now. But Jesus, we long for the day when we see you face to face where we can reach out and touch you and be with you forever. So Lord Jesus, we just echo. We echo the saints of old. We echo the saints of the future. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We love you. We want to see you soon. In Christ's name, forever. Amen. Thank you all for coming.